Turn to Revelation, if, if you would, the book of Revelation. We're, uh, we're going to continue on in this series that we've jumped into, the seven letters to the seven churches. And we started with uh, Ephesus and then went to Smyrna, and now we're in Pergamum. And so I want to kind of take us back to the map. And remember, this is a, what's called a circular letter. So John is over here uh, on the island of Patmos. He's exiled because Imperial Rome is not looking kindly on this kind of new religion and, and the disruption. So he's exiled, and he writes this circular letter. Uh, it's prophetic, it's apocalyptic, and it's designed to kind of be taken to the churches in Asia Minor here, and it's going to give them a message. We, we tend to reduce down the book of Revelation to the Left Behind series, you know what I mean? Like, it's this kind of end times only thing, and, and frankly, the book of Revelation is a real letter to real people that begins with where they're at and then moves it forward. And the themes in the book, if you want to say there's one dominant theme from start to finish, it's the majesty of Christ. It's the centrality of Christ. It's, it's um, the holiness of God. And, and so we begin with the, the context. And then as we get to the later chapters in the book, it's talking about uh, things to come, and it is prophetic, and it talks about uh, what it will be like when we're in heaven uh, with Christ, with God, and what that looks like. And so the book is not just reduced down to end times. It's really walking um, these folk through that, both now and then looking forward. And so it's a circular letter. It's going to go to multiple audiences, and in this interesting little chunk, seven letters to seven churches, uh, we're actually getting our only look in the New Testament of kind of what you would see in the Old Testament with prophecy. So in the Old Testament, you get the, the thus saith the Lord's, you know what I'm talking about? These big prophetic books where the prophet in some sense gets out of the way and God's just talking. And we see that with these seven letters that in some sense, Jesus is wanting to talk to these churches uh, in this letter. And it's kind of this uh, thus saith the Lord, or here's my here are my words specifically for you. And we started with the church, Ephesus, the port city. Uh, then to Smyrna, Ed Underwood talked about the suffering church and what it looks like when you're in this uh, place of suffering and how, how that uh, plays itself out in trying to maintain faith. And then we get to Pergamum. Pergamum's an, a very important city uh, for a couple reasons. One is it's, a thousand, uh, about a thousand feet up, so just vertical elevation. You can see it there, and um, you know the top up here is where this, the ancient city was. And you've actually got they they have a gondola now that goes up to the top of this. It's this crazy tourist state of the art gondola because uh, it's a crazy walk. You know, really be, would be tough to walk it, and the road winds round and round and round, but incredibly steep. Um, place uh, Pergamum was. It was an ancient kind of center of civilization, uh, of power, kind of a fort city. Uh, Mithridates, who was uh, one of the kings of this area when Rome began to move out and fan out in uh, the first century before Christ, this was kind of the seat of power for him. If you read a book called The Poison King, it's all about him, quote unquote, Rome's greatest enemy. And interesting. It's called the Poison King because he would always daily take a little bit of poison under the idea that he was going to make himself immune from being poisoned because he was really good at poisoning other people. 
It would make a great movie. Um, but this was kind of the stronghold here for, for that kingdom and everything else. And so here's a view from the top. You can see that from an ancient standpoint, this would be a great place to, to build your city. You can see anything going on in surrounding areas, troop movements, uh, kind of keep an eye on, on everything. Incredibly windy place. This would have been the Roman Agora marketplace uh, on the top uh, of Pergamum. This is the Temple of Trajan. It's a, a huge temple, large temple. would have been built probably a little bit after John writes his letter. Uh, but it's really important because what it shows is you, you have the imperial cults at work. Okay, And the imperial cults, this was built to Trajan, began in his lifetime. So it's fascinating that uh, you begin to worship him in his lifetime and then certainly after his death uh, when the temple was completed. But the idea beginning with Caesar... Uh, Caesar moves Rome, moves Rome away from a republic where your primary guy would be basically, basically just a leader. And you begin to get this idea of, of the primary guy now being a son of God or being uh, a lord, so to speak, in terms of a deity. And it's a um, fascinating thing, like if we, if we were to really chase it down, because all of Christianity is kind of set against this culture um, of, of Rome. You know, Caesar was B.C., and so by the time you get the New Testament church, this kind of idea of the imperial cults is really uh, coming about. And so Paul, in the book of Romans, he's writing to Christians in Rome, and he says, if you confess with your lips and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. And We've kind of Americanized this and privatized this to kind of like, if I'm, if I'm all by myself and in my own little mind, confess that Jesus is Lord, you know, and then believe it in my heart, then I'll be saved. And it would have had a much different tone to these Roman Christians because there was a mantra, there was a, a formula you were supposed to ascribe, uh, ascribe to that you, you had to kind of in some sense have allegiance to and that was this idea that Caesar s. curios, that Caesar is Lord. And so Paul writes to these Christians and he says, if you confess with your lips and really believe that Jesus Christos, Jesus Christ, is curios, that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And it's, it's this idea that you're not going to go underneath the banner of Caesar, um, but you're, you're going to, in some sense, reject that which which means you're out of allegiance with the, the, the empire, okay? Uh, and you're going to say, no, instead of that, I'm believing that Jesus is Lord, that I'm setting up this, this completely other way of, of talking about it because that's where my authority is, that's where my God is, and I reject this claim of, of the Caesars to being Lord. And so there's this huge kind of thing, and you kind of begin to see that, um, of what it really means to follow Christ and what the implications are for that and then what's happening with the kind of authority systems of the day that you're, you're rejecting in ascribing all authority to Christ. Does that make sense? So this city, because of its prominence, had imperial cults, and this is where the Roman proconsul was. Uh, what does that mean? Well, just like in the province of Judea, uh, Pilate, 
We're all familiar with the story of Pilate is the proconsul for Judea, and Jesus has to come before him, and basically he has the power for execution. He has the last say in terms of somebody being judged or not judged or, or whatnot. He has the power of the sword. And likewise, in this area, this incredibly important area, probably a lot more important than Judea, uh, you have the Roman proconsul would have his seat here. This is where he would reside. This is where his authority rested was in this area. That's going to come back in just a minute. Um, this is the theater of Pergamum. And um, it looks like a model, right? Is Kip in this service? I made fun of him in the last service. It's, we've, we've lost our roots. The first two years of Antioch, Kip would would get made fun of regularly by Guy Gleason doing announcements, and it's time to get back to our roots. Um, Kip, Kip takes pictures on his iPhone, but he has this little app that blurs out the edges to, to give it a 3D effect, and he, he just over-blurred this. But this is real. This is, this is real. Um, this is on the side of the hill. It's not a model, um, and it's, it's known as the steepest theater in, in the ancient world. So it's incredibly steep. Um, if you're standing there, you're like, yeah, I don't want to really walk up those steps. Um, I even think this picture may be tilted. You can kind of see it if this is flat, but it's, it's known as the steepest theater. And it's amazing to me, wh what are you guys sitting in right now? A theater. And what do we tune into every Sunday morning? Colosseums. And it's just fascinating to me how much of Western culture was shaped uh, from thousands of years ago. Like every city has theaters and really big cities, important cities have coliseums. And this is kind of goes all the way back to here. Now there's off to the side right here uh, the remains of a temple of uh, Dionysius. Now Dionysius was, this is going to play in, in a little bit too. So one, you got to remember the seat of authority where the proconsul was. And then uh, emperor worship uh, and the, this temple to Dionysius. It had multiple temples, but there was one to Dionysius here. Dionysius was the god of wine, uh, the god of kind of... Um, if there was a god of rave, you know what I mean by rave? Like stay up all night and do ecstasy kind of rave? You know what I'm talking about? Um, like if there was a god of the rave, that's Dionysius. Okay, that, that's kind of the idea. And uh, so there would be these festivals in some places that would look more, more like an orgy. Uh, and, and so Dionysius is a fascinating thing Nietzsche, back when Nietzsche was writing, Nietzsche was not a philosopher. He was a philologist, trained philologist, which is a study of ancient languages. And he, his area was classical Greek language, and he loved Socrates and all this other stuff. But he was really taken with the god Dionysius and this idea of kind of the rave. And so he would talk about the Apollinean, which is kind of, for him, after Apollo's structure, order, and then uh, the Dionysian frenzy, this idea of coming together and there's this kind of, um, idea, we, know, we know it from a concert. If you think of it a concert, you in some sense lose your individuality when you're really engaged emotionally with a group of people like that. And so you kind of take your individuality and it becomes a part of this, this um, crowd kind of 
thing going on. You know what I'm talking about? Um, and he was intrigued by these two opposite kind of natures, and he was really taken to this. And one of his ways of how do we find ourselves, um, one of them was in the, over, the Ubermensch, you know, the Overman, um, giving style to our character and making ourselves into something, creating a new kind of man. And, but then he also was enamored with this kind of Greek idea of coming together and finding this greater collective and happiness in this kind of throng. So this is very sensual, you know, uh, God Dionysius and, and things around Dionysius would have been very sensual in, in that kind of a way. Um, and that's going to play in here in a minute uh, as well. And so we get to the letter itself. And so let's read it in Revelation chapter 2. And this is to the church in Pergamum. It says this, To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. So all these letters begin with a statement of authority. The first one to Ephesus began with, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars, the seven angels to the churches in the right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands, which were the churches. This is, these are the words of the one who, who holds these things in his hand, has authority over these things. The second letter begins this way. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who died and came back to life again. Again, this idea of these are the words of the one in authority. Now to Pergamum, where the proconsul was, where the sword was, the power to, to judge and render judgments, it says these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword, the one in authority, the one in charge, the one who can make judgments. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Uh, there's a lot of different views on this. The most common is that this really was the seat of, of Roman power uh, in this city. And so, again, the empire that stands against the Christian uh, religion and against Christ, this is the... Uh, the city, I know where you live, this is the city where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. And nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So what is the ultimate message of this letter? The letter has both blessings, affirmations, and then has kind of a judgment or a critique. The blessing is really short and encapsulates the same kind of idea, but it says this, you remain true to my name. You, you stand by me. You don't leave it. You haven't left it. You're not peeling off when suffering or persecution comes you're hanging in there, you still are known by my name. 
so people know that you follow me. You know, you haven't kind of slid into culture to where you're kind of hiding there and you're no longer identifying yourself with me like was what was happening in the book of Hebrews where we also see this whole idea of, of the sword of the mouth. But um, people were kind of coming out of the spotlight and, and kind of then being just a part of culture but not really being um, the person that stands out. And so in Hebrews we see this Let's not stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Like, you're supposed to meet with the other believers. You're supposed to get together, pray for each other, encourage each other. You're supposed to um, be together. Now, in being together, if you're drawing fire and you're exposed and there's persecution that comes from that, we all immediately know uh, if we step back from that a bit, and become a little bit closer to the majority who's focused on the minority, we kind of get, get out of the hot, the hot seat. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you remember this in um, high school, right? Or junior high. You know, you're, you're playing with, like, figurines, and it's really cool, and you got, like, three friends. You guys are really into these little figurines, and then one day you're playing with the figurines, and then the ninth graders come along, and they start teasing you, and like, you know, you're, you're such a dork, and you're like, oh, no, like, I'm a dork, you know, like, what do I do? And your buddies are like, oh, whatever, you know, and they keep playing, and you're like, oh, well, you know, and you, you can't, you know what I'm talking, um, you, you peel off from it, because in distancing yourself, all of a sudden, you're not now on the hot seat, and if you keep doing the thing, you know you're going to keep inviting that criticism. And religious persecution is a crazy thing. It's easy to read about, maybe somewhat easy to think about, but I'll tell you exactly where I'm at with it. One, I watch all the movies and, and read all the stories about um, torture, okay? Like real live torture, you know, uh, you get professionals pulling you into a back room with all the time in the world to torture you, right? I watch these movies, and you want to know what my thought is? My, my thought is I'm just cut right to the chase and tell them what they need to know because I'm eventually going to get there. My, my wife's in here for the service, and she's like, really, Ken? <laughs> um, but I kind of think about, I, I don't know that I would when you put me in it, but there's a logic to where I'm kind of like, you know what? Like this doesn't see, this really doesn't seem to make sense. Jack Bauer would have cracked I, under the Chinese. Um, and it's like, really? Like um, standing firm, is it really, you know, is it really the thing to do? Let me put it a different way and maybe a little bit closer to home. I got four daughters if really wearing Christ on my shirt means I might be killed like Antipas was, is that really what I should do? I mean, widow my wife and orphan my kids? Like, really? Is that smart? And if it's, you know, if, if the smartness of it's in question, maybe... 
maybe it's not prudent. Maybe I'll just stop playing with those figurines a little bit and just kind of maybe stop meeting with the other Christians a little bit because, you know, I got to balance these two things out because I got responsibilities. And I, I mean, it's, you see how subtle it is? Like, I mean, it's not easy to stand firm on the hot seat under the, the, the withering kind of criticism with the stakes so high. And it's not just a selfish thing like, I don't like this. But I mean, the, the implications go to your, your loved ones. You know what I'm talking about? And Jesus is like, but you guys stand firm. You guys actually do stand firm. That's really cool. So he's like, man, you, you guys remain true to my name and you didn't renounce me. You didn't peel off when you could have. You didn't find the excuses when, when maybe others would have. You guys actually like hung in there in the pocket and took it. Um, like, you know what I'm saying? And Jesus is like, hey, that's really cool. And he says, and I know that it's not just um, little things of being teased or made fun of like it might be here in America. Um, but the way it would be maybe in Iran where uh, the stakes are a lot bigger and people are dying. And I know, I, so I know the stakes and I know that you love me and I know that you've stayed true. Um, and it's a pretty, pretty cool affirmation. But then look at where he kind of goes right from there. And this is the whole middle part of the letter. He says, nevertheless, for all that good, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And you, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols. Balaam is this figure in the book of Numbers when the Israelites are moving to take the land. And he's kind of this guy that does divination and, and uh, etc. And he's kind of between Balak, who's the king, who's feeling threatened by the Israelites and, and the Israelites. But it's a fascinating story. Uh, bad king over here, just kind of spiritual uh, guy in the middle, prophetic guy in the middle. And he's the one that ends up getting on his donkey because he's requested by the king over here. And this is the, this is the donkey that talks in the Old Testament. God, the angel of the Lord gets in the middle of the road and the donkey sees the angel of the Lord and lays down and, and Balaam gets mad, you know, beats the donkey. The donkey veers off and kind of crushes his leg against the wall and he's beating the donkey, not going what on, what's going on. And then finally he sees the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is usually a warrior type image. Um, it's authority. It's kind of sword, you know what I'm saying? Sword in hand, kind of authority. And the angel of the Lord is in the road saying, what are you doing? Why are you traveling there? at his request to curse the Israelites. These are my people that I've blessed. And, and so Blom's, whoa, okay. Uh, typically what happens when you see the angel of the Lord, you're willing to back up. Uh, he says, what do you want me to do? And he says, oh, continue on, but you're, you're, gonna, you're not gonna curse the Israelites. So he goes on and three different ways the guy tries to get him to curse the Israelites. Each time the curse turns into a blessing and you got this king pulling his hair out 
And he's like, what are you doing? Like, I, I brought you to curse them and, and you keep blessing them. And it's like crazy. And so this whole story of Blom becomes an, an archetypal story in the Bible. So just like the whole Israelites leaving, going through the desert, coming into the promised land, it happened over a certain small period of time. Yet that story keeps coming up symbolically all throughout the rest of Scripture. Do you know what, you know what I'm talking about? It serves as a symbol or an archetype uh, for a whole lot of spiritual truths. Likewise, because Balaam was a part of this narrative, he shows up all throughout the Old Testament record as well in uh, the prophets, and then he shows up here as well. And so the picture really is you, you got a king uh, who's enticing Israelites into a kind of lifestyle and belief in disregard for God, disregard for the holiness of God, uh, disregard for the bigness of God, you know, in this middle ground. And Balaam's kind of like a middleman in this. So you get what we would call syncretism, which is orthodox views and pagan views or secular views in this, this kind of area where they end up intersecting and getting watered down and syncretizing into each other. Uh, and so what you've got here are, um, are people in the church of Pergamum who are uh, a part of the fellowship, but they're holding to or espousing or under the influence of pagan or secular or, or non-Christian uh, doctrines, beliefs, and ideas. Does that make sense? And then he goes one step further and uses a different symbol, the Nicolaitans, which is a Gnostic, kind of Greek Gnostic way of looking at it. And the idea there is like Greek Gnosticism. It comes out of Greek dualism, which the spirit is good and matter or the flesh is evil and corrupt. And so you drive this huge wedge between the two and this, this view here was, um, I can do whatever in my body. It's not going to corrupt my spirit because they're so different. And the implications are sexually or in terms of uh, morality, you can kind of do whatever you want with your body because it's separate from your spirit, which is good, and it's corrupt anyways. And so it, it leads to all sorts of um, perversions of, of bifurcating your faith, compartmentalizing your faith, and frankly, there's a lot of Gnostic ideas, uh, I think, in the church in America. Where we're like, man, I once, I once at camp said a little prayer, and I am now um, belong to God, and I'm his, and, and I'm a Christian, and all my sins are forgiven, and, and isn't it wonderful? And I'm talking facetious. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. And now, the rest of my life, uh, well, of course I'm going to help myself to some of that. And of course I'm going to do that. Well, everyone else is doing this. And there's this kind of sense in which the life I'm going to live over the next 60 years or what I'm doing in my body is disconnected somehow from what was going on spiritually over here in my salvation. And we, we don't understand that we're this organic unity that, that when the Holy Spirit seals us and, and makes us alive, quickens us, and it's as if we're adopted and we're now... Uh, sons and daughters of God, behold, the old is gone, the new has come. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. That, that goes from your soul all the way you know, through your body into your life and decisions. And there is no sense in which you can unite your body with, with stuff that's impure or unholy. And that's really 
why you, uh, in Paul's letters, why would you go to a prostitute? Don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And you can't, what's going on, you guys? You know, and so in the Bible, you get this pleading of, you got to understand that all of life is spiritual and that your body becomes a vessel of God and, and, and the instruments of God. And, and so there's this kind of sense of the holiness and the gravity of the whole situation rather than people who have watered it down and kind of think spirit's going to take care of itself and it's all going to work out in the end. And hey, while I'm here, why wouldn't I harmonize with the Dionysian cult? Why wouldn't I join in on the fun that others are having? Why would I stand out separate from culture and how they're engaging life and sucking the marrow out of it? Like, you, you see where that kind of goes. And so Christ comes and he says, listen, for all your good, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the te teaching of Nicolaitis. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, what is Jesus really angry about here? Is it the sexual sin? You see... I think sometimes we get the message wrong in church and, and there's, we, we get so harped up on morality, which is absolutely important. God is holy and we're supposed to be holy too. We are commanded to be pure, to live in such a way as if what he said is true and matters to us. But what Jesus is really pointing out here is that you're allowing people in your midst who are holding to heretical or false uh, or destructive ideas that over time will compromise or weaken uh, or, or bleed away the integrity or the clarity of the gospel message that you're, you're, you're entrusted with. What he's really frustrated with here, Jesus is, is the same thing that God has been frustrated with since the beginning of calling his people out unto himself. It, it shows up all the way back in the beginning and, it, and goes all the way now till the end. And God is always saying, don't you get it? That heresy is subtle, but it slowly destroys the integrity of what's going on at the center of your community. And, and as it does that, over time, it will diminish my authority and lead people into error. And so this was always the thing with the kings in, in, in the Old Testament. Uh, Solomon was, was angered God because he took these wives and then appeased them by saying, sure, we'll have, we'll have some of these other forms of worship and, and we'll, we'll add that. What's really wrong with it? And I want to I be on good terms with my wife who doesn't, you know, and um, we'll add that one. And, and so what begins to happen is if you've got one thing in your hand, one important thing, one driving consideration, and you start adding to it, what happens? You, you, you slowly 
water down or neutralize the importance of that one dominant thing that you used to hold. Does that make sense? And so it subtly, slowly diminishes the authority of Christ when other things are beginning to be put into the, the deck of cards and held onto or tolerated. And so you have Solomon that kind of does it this way. Frankly, when you get to the prophets and God judges his people, God's like, I'm not going to let this continue anymore. I'm going to send you into judgment. I'm going to discipline you like children. Why? Because you've now gotten so far from where you started from that I can no longer allow it to go. And part of the watering down of my authority and the loss of a sense of my commands and what it means to live in terms of a pure and holy way is that you're engaging in immorality and injustice. And God says, I can't let that continue anymore, so I'm going to judge it. So when we see this letter to the church of Pergamum, the focal point here is that there is the presence of heresy in the church, and it's not being dealt with, even though these people are surrendering themselves, in some sense, to the persecution that could mean death from being Christians. And here's, I think, the fascinating insight for me. Heresy is, one, always subtle. And, it, and it, it's always going to have a measure of truth or a lot of measures of truth. But it's either going to bring in elements that aren't a part of the gospel or bring in a focus that takes and makes the gospel presentation out of balance. So the addition or subtraction of ideas or taking the gospel and enacting it in such a way that it's off-center, out of balance from what the gospel, uh, the message of Christ is and was. And so you see Paul talking about this. He says, listen, it's really about the gospel. That's what reflects and communicates the authority of Christ unto salvation. And if anyone comes to you and preaches a different gospel either adding, subtracting, or taking the balance and, and putting it off kilter. Even if it's me, and you don't have anything to do with it, because that you've got to hold pure and true. So heresy is subtle, and in its subtlety, it's also not urgent. What do I mean by that? Um... <sighs> The, um, when, when was the last time in your life or your Christian walk that, that heresy was so urgent and important that it overshadowed the fact that you were losing your house or that you were worried about your job or that your marriage was on the rocks or that gossip was happening or that uh, your health was bad or that your friends had a, a child whose health was messed up in a way that shouldn't be for a child. When, when was the last time that rooting out heresy and drawing the boundary lines or creating the distinctions was so pressing that it was at the top of your priority list? Anybody? 
This letter for me is the scariest of all the letters because I think it's the least urgent in terms of our own personal experience. I, you know, I don't wake, I mean, it's not the thing I think I need most spiritually. You know, spiritually, what I feel like I need most is an experience of the presence of God, the knowledge that prayer works, um, or the thing that's broke that, that stands out the most to me is either business affairs or the tension points or, you know, but heresy is not urgent. So what scares me most about this letter is because I think it's really prophetic to the American church in that do we take serious the biblical from Old Testament all the way through injunction towards maintaining purity of doctrine and thought um, even if it's not urgent? Let me give an example of this. I look at my kids and responsibility matters. I, I know that a work ethic matters. I know what it looks like later on in life if you have one and if you don't have one. And so I'm looking at them cleaning their room, and I don't, I, don't, I don't really care about that shirt on the floor, but I'm seeing their character with regard to it. And I'm sitting there going, um, this needs to be done in a certain way because you need to, to grow into an understanding of what it means to be responsible. Because you need to carry that on later into life. And so as a parent standing back, I'm like, I see this in a total different way than my daughter sees this. She's like, that shirt doesn't really matter. And I already cleaned so much. And, you know, we're running late, you know. But I'm, I'm back looking at the big picture and going, no, it, it matters my, my wife and I have this saying we're beginning to use with our daughters that attraction is what you see now, character is what you live with later. I, I, I pray daily that my daughters don't find a hunk of a guy. I care less about that. I care that they find a guy with character that's going to provide and has a work ethic. And... I need to teach them what character is so that they begin to value it and begin to see it because it matters on how they're going to make decisions later, even in the face of a hunk of a guy, right? And so when I step back, I realize the importance of these things, even if my daughters don't realize the importance or the urgency of responsibility or understanding what character is. And God is back here and he's looking at these, you know, Jesus is looking at this church that's, that's literally dealing with the matters of life and death and urgency, and, and they're locked up in that. And he's saying, I get that. I get that. But there's something else here really, really important. And if you don't deal with this and maintain the integrity of the doctrine and the thought that, that frankly leads to action and everything else, this will slowly erode. Um, it, it'll, it'll erode the foundation out from underneath you. If you don't pick those dandelion dandelion we have dandelions in the yard and the girls keep talking about it if you don't pick the dandelions now before long you're going to have a yard full of dandelions and and jesus is like i know this isn't urgent to you but this is important you got to see it you got to realize it you got to believe it you need to act on it and what he's really talking to are the leaders of the church or like parents even parents you are over and responsible for your children and and you you're 
you're ultimately going to set the tone as to whether you're going to allow culture to nestle up right next to doctrine and truth and life and exist there and slowly knit itself into the hearts of your kids or whether you're going to draw stronger distinctions and really stand next to your kids vigilant that, that what they're getting is truth and not syncretism. And so for leaders in the church or for parents in the home, we're tasked with this thing of saying it's on our watch that we have to continually, we, oh man, my mind thinks in terms of analogies and then when it's like noon, I just say them. But uh, there's like a gorilla movie, chimpanzee movie out right now. Disney, chimpanzee movie. It's called chimpanzee, is it called chimps? Chimpanzee. Well, I never really thought about it, but they were talking about why these chimps groom each other in that movie. You know, they're always like grooming each other. And, and it's, it's like ticks and things like that, that if you let them go for too long, like really end up affecting the health of something. And it's like, I mean, as parents and as church leaders and as small group leaders, we need to be like chimps, combing each other's backs. And, and anyways, I, uh, I have a friend, I have a friend that tells a story um, and it's a pretty, uh, pretty unbelievable story about his wife. She gave him permission to tell the story, you know, when he tells it. But his wife was a new believer in a high school youth group. She started dating a guy in that high school youth group. They're both new believers, and they're trying to figure out, we don't understand where to draw the line with this whole sex thing. We're new Christians, and we know where culture's at. So they went to a married couple that was helping out with the youth group. So they went to the married couple in authority, kind of helping with the youth group, and they went to him. and they said, well, what do we do? And the married couple said to them, well, if you love each other and are committed to each other, then there's nothing wrong with it. And so my friend is based, uses that story as, if we don't guard the leadership if, in our church, if we don't guard the influencers in our church, then false ideas can immediately lead to a watering down of truth and a confusion um, of, of the sheep or the flock. And it, and it can lead into actions that people go, well, I don't understand why this would be wrong and well, so-and-so's doing it, I don't know. And, and it, it's huge. And sometimes as a church, we get so into business affairs because it's stressful. Making budget is stressful. And we get so into that that it's like, what about the other component of making sure that the influencers in our church are passing on truth in as, as close to an orthodox fashion as we possibly can? Does that make sense? So listen to what Jesus says here, he, he concludes it by saying, if you, don't, if you don't stop and recognize this, I will come soon to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. All throughout the Old Testament, when it went far enough, God would judge. He would judge those in error. He would judge his people. And Jesus is saying, if this goes long enough, far enough, 
I will come with the sword in my mouth, the symbol of authority, and I will judge and I will guarantee and ensure that I set this thing back on the right course. Now, the interesting thing to this uh, for me is pastors can always ratchet up um, the emotion for everything, the sense of urgency. So if, if it's giving money to Africa, it's showing a, an AIDS orphan uh, in a state of poverty. You know what I'm talking about? If, if we really harped on that, you're going to be moved with compassion, right? And if not sinning is the idea, then, you know, through use of wise words and rhetoric, pastors can get up and, and we can really make you feel guilty and, and hellfire and brimstone and really ratchet up the guilt and, and you'll squirm and you'll be nervous. And you know what I'm talking about? We can, as pastors, bring about guilt. Does that make sense? Pastors can bring about intensity of emotion for a lot of good reasons on a lot of different topics. My problem as I look at this passage here is it, it's not necessarily tied to authority. And what I mean by that is when something is serious, we take it serious. My grandma was serious, um, really serious. I don't remember her saying anything funny the whole time I knew her. And when I got to her house, I didn't run around like I did at my own house because it was serious business. And so, like, I took it serious. If you go to the White House, you take the lie detector more serious than you do the lie detector at the airport. And you take the guys working the, the, uh, not the lie detector, the uh, metal detector. <laughs> Just trying to see who's sleeping. You take the metal detector more serious than you do at the airport, and you take the guys working the metal detector more serious than you do the TSA. You know what I'm saying? I, I was talking to some people today that were in court recently, and they said, man, there's something about that environment, and the judge in authority up there with the gavel, you, you take it serious. And I think sometimes we need to remember that God's way of getting our attention from the Old Testament on is he starts with authority, not with emotionalism. He always starts with authority. You need to fear me. You need to have a healthy respect and awe and fear for who I am. I need to be bigger. I'm a jealous God. I'm a scary dude. And you need to take me serious. And he starts with authority. And when we really get the authority, what tends to happen is our, our, how serious we are about doctrine, how serious we are about our actions, all of that kind of jumps up to that level because of the gravity of what's going on, the bigness of what's going on, the holiness of what's going on. And, and Jesus is saying, listen, if you're not going to get me here, then I'm going to come with a double-edged sword out of my mouth and I'm going to bring it. And, and I will get my way. I'm the one in authority. I'm the one who wields the sword. I'm the one who judges. Now, you got that? So, okay, to him who overcomes, to him who 
like makes it all the way through. To him who resists the, wor uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. To him that puts the energy into it when it's important, not just urgent, but important. To the person that really cares about this because it matters. Really cares about me because I matter. Takes it serious because I'm serious. To the person who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to nurture and sustain. And I will take and I will write your name on a white stone, a new name, known only to you and me. And in Pergamum, we'll close with this, one of the things they were known for in the ancient world is there's a lot of onyx around Pergamum. So red onyx, green onyx, white onyx, depends on what depth of the soil you're, you're mining. And onyx is a fascinating stone because if you polish it up and cut it fine enough, it's translucent. So light will pass through it. And and it polishes, unlike a lot of stones. And so they'll make different things out of it. And this was what Pergamum was known for. And Jesus says, if you really overcome, and the word here, the root word of overcome is Nike. Nike. Like the real word, Nike. Um, which means to have victory, to overcome. First in battle and then later like in the games. But it's basically being victorious and overcoming. So the next time you see a Nike symbol, man, that's a spiritual, spiritual concept. Um, and he's saying, listen, if you take this serious enough, all of it, you already have taken this half serious enough, if you take this half serious enough, and you overcome, I'll give you a new name. And I'm going to write it on a, on a valuable stone. And he's basically saying, I will secure your legacy all throughout the ancient world. The, the aristocracy, the important people would get their names carved into columns and everything else. And it was, it was their legacy and it was their importance. And he's saying, I'm going to give you a new name with a new, you know, re reflective of this new identity in me. I'm going to put it on a white stone. And so when we walk away from this today, and we're out of time, but... What areas are you blending culture and faith? Have you taken and, and begun to let God or Christ or his lordship in your life slowly mean less and less so that your, your slice of life that's just out doing life is getting bigger and bigger, detached from um, his sovereignty? What are we, what are we doing that we're not weeding out? What are the subtle things that are, that are the weeds that are growing up in this church or in our own lives or in the lives of the people you care about? And are we taking those of you in leadership, those of you that, that are, have influence or small groups or our parents, are you taking seriously enough the role that ideas and orthodoxy and doctrine play? And are we guarding to make sure that we're continually to promote and nurture the garden of the mind, so to speak, without the weeds, so that those people get what's going on? Because if we don't do this well, it always shows up in the next generation. If we lose orthodoxy in our generation, we lose faith in the next generation. And so we double down and we take this serious. Father, I just pray if this, regardless if it's not urgent to us, that it would be important to us. It shows up in this letter. It has relevance today. I know, we, I, know I smuggle in so much um, American church culture into my faith. And I just pray that you would show me where that's at. 
pray that you would show all of us where we can refine our thinking and our beliefs. I pray that we would care about the important things, not just the urgent things in front of us. We thank you for scripture, that it can show us subtle areas where we might not be paying attention. In Christ's name, amen.